You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. You're never more alone than when you're lonely with other people. Job, by himself, is in pain. But Job, with his friends, is in hell. If you know the story, you know that's true. And yet you also know that a circle of friends, when you're hurting, can be your greatest source of strength. I remember sitting in a parent support group a couple of years ago. Our hearts were broken. And yet, as we listened to the story of every other parent, uh, somehow we felt comforted. Because we knew that what we shared together was what the Apostle Paul calls the fellowship of suffering. And that's what you want when you're hurting. And that's what Job needs. A circle of friends that would sit with him in his pain. Instead, he gets Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three who offer him nothing but unsolicited advice. I want to invite you to think with me today about how we can find friends who will strengthen us when we suffer. And maybe more important, how we can be friends to other people who strengthen them when they suffer. Well, we're working through the book of Job, so let's turn in our pew Bibles to page 405. And if you brought your Bible, so much the better. Just go to the left of Psalms and you'll find Job chapter 19, verses 13 through 27. I'm shifting our text just a little bit. You're thinking of the whole chapter, but why don't you let me read for you verses 13 through 27. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're hearing God's holy word. This is Job speaking of God. God has put my family far from me, and my acquaintances are wholly estranged from me. My relatives and my close friends have failed me. The guests in my house have forgotten me. My serving girls count me as a stranger. I've become an alien in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must myself plead with him. My favorite. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones cling to my skin and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's where that expression comes from. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me, never satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed then, in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. 
seems like the more that Job suffers, the more he feels like he's alone. And the story chronicles the isolation, the increasing loneliness of this man in pain. Tells the story here in verses 13 through 27, but actually we've already been watching this across this whole section that starts in chapter 3 and goes all the way through chapter 27. There are three cycles of Job's friends coming up and giving him words, speaking to him. And he feels increasingly lonely. Why? Unsolicited advice. These three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, prove to be the original mansplainers. They line up to explain what has happened to Job and to tell him what he needs to do in order to fix it. Essentially, in all of their words, the message is, Job, just try harder. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know the problem with unsolicited advice? It's just rarely appreciated. Job's friends can't see how helpful he's being for some reason. They seem to forget to say thank you. Now, this happens to my children as well. I can completely relate. They have no idea what a missed opportunity it is to have a dad with so much wisdom living in the house with them. I mean, I try to find ways to hint at them and say, you know, I might have something that would help you with that, or I might have had an experience that would be relevant to that. And it like flies over their heads. For some reason, they can't even miss my cues. They live with this the fount of experiences and knowledge and, you know, truth and wisdom right there. And it's it's just such a missed opportunity. (laughs) I wonder if you feel that way too. I'd like you to take a look at the person next to you. Go ahead and turn your head. Look at that person. They may have been someone that came with you. But I mean, look at them now. And can't you see some way in which you could fix them? Something, little thing. I mean, there's got to be something that you look at them that you do. The belt loop or the little piece of hair that's sticking up. I mean... And that's the way it is. It would be so easy. I mean, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. But I want to just bless you with a few easy things that you can do to become a better person, right? Just let me share that with you. And, and we all have that gift that we would just love to give to other people. So in that sense, we're all like Job's friends. And this is why it's so troubling that Job calls them worthless physicians <laughs> and miserable comforters. Why? Because the truth is, no matter what you say or what your intentions are, whenever you and I give somebody unsolicited advice, you know how it comes across? It comes across as accusation. Accusation. This insinuation that um, the solution to your problem would be trying harder creates the uh, understanding that the problem is you. (laughs) you've done something wrong, or you could do something better, or you could think differently about your situation. These words cast reproach, Job says. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3, chapter 19. Job says, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? You break me in pieces with words. That's quite an image. These ten times, he says, you've cast reproach upon me. The Hebrew for that means you have cast me into shame. You've pushed me into shame. Why? Because you've implied that this is all about me. This is something I've done wrong. Now, you and I know that's not true. This is the irony of this. Remember the split screen display that the prologue gives us. Chapters 1 and 2 make it really clear. Job is righteous. He is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. At the end of the story, in chapter 42, the epilogue, God's going to say to Job, you have spoken well. 
So we know what Job and his friends don't know, that he actually is innocent. And so he's tempted to take this unsolicited advice in as cloaked, thinly veiled accusations. Now, what is shame? Hear a little bit about shame in our culture today. It's shame is the psychological response to the feeling that there's something wrong with me. You know, guilt is, uh, I've done bad. Shame is, I am bad. And let me tell you, when you're suffering, you're already dripping with shame. It's all over you. I mean, you just can't, it just, it comes unsolicited. When you lose that job, uh, when you're told there's something wrong with your prostate, when you walk with that limp, whatever it is, you, you can't escape the, the feeling that there's something wrong with you. Yes, there is something wrong, but now you're thinking there's something wrong with me. I'm not enough, and this is shame. You know, his friends, Job, was like, no, that's not what we're saying at all. Look, we're your friends, Job. We're here to help. You know, our intentions are good. And that's all probably true. But as they increasingly elaborate on ways that they should have or they could have or that he must have, or even as they try to help him and offer spiritual, biblical counsel for the future, you know, you shouldn't talk this way, you shouldn't think this way, this is the way you should really feel. Job increasingly thinks, there must be something wrong with me. John Stott points out that when you boil this all down, quote, the attitude recommended by Job's friends may best be described as self-accusation. They're not only offering veiled accusations, they're actually trying to encourage him to admit that their characterization is true, to to. Um, take in a posture of self-accusation. Now, this should give us pause. When we have similar motivations, when we are likewise well-intentioned and tempted to give unsolicited advice, when I'm tempted to say to my coworker, you know, if I were giving the presentation, this is the way I would uh, give If I'm tempted to say to my classmate, you know, I think you might look better if you put your makeup on this way. Or if I'm tempted to say to my teenager, uh, you know, here's really how you parallel park. Or if I'm tempted to say to my adult children, this is what it, you really should be doing if you want to parent well. In all of those cases, it may be, if this is true, it may just be that we're actually undermining the goal that we have for that person. Because if they receive this as accusation and it increases their sense of shame, then it undermines the very confidence that they would need in order to perform well in the face of the challenges that life has presented them with. Now, I have to ask the question, why am I, because I am, I'm coming to you here as a sinner, why am I so addicted to unsolicited advice. You might come to my defense and say, George, it's an occupational hazard, right? We pay you to give advice. And I don't know if that's so true, actually. So I've searched my soul, and I think there are two reasons here. One is unsolicited advice comes out of our need to have control. I mean, you can see that in this book. These three friends want to believe they live in a world that makes sense. They want to believe that there are rules to life and that if you follow the rules, good things will always happen. We do not like to believe that bad things can happen to good people or that good things can happen to bad people. And that's the script that these three are playing off again and again and again. And yet the truth of the book of Job is it's just, it's just more complicated than that. It really is. We don't live in this kind of strict moral uh, moral economy. 
in which everything happens swimmingly for those who do well in life. That's the, that's the message of the book as a whole. It's kind of a counterbalance to some of the wisdom in Proverbs, which seem to imply that in every case, if you do the right thing, good things happen. Yeah, it's more complicated than that. That's a shame for those of us who'd like to be able to control our situation. By the way, a lot of us are drawn to religion because we think it offers us this, just this kind of control. So we, we, as religious people, we have to be very careful with that. The other reason I think we're addicted to unsolicited advice is uh, our own experience of shame. And it's a little awkward to talk about this, but if you see in chapter 19, verse 3, actually, Job makes reference to the shame of his counselors. And the truth is, we all have an experience of shame. One writer, Kurt Thompson, says, shame begets shame. And that when we don't manage our shame or have a way to manage our shame, it tends to play out in all of our relationships, whether we're conscious of that or not. We all live with our own self-accusations, and somehow when we compare ourselves with others, it just makes us feel a little bit better if we can take them down a notch. Uh, Maybe this is why Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye when you can't see the log in your own? I mean, it must feel good to Job's counselors to be able to advise him and tell him how he could be a little bit of a better guy like they are, right? I mean, would it be nauseating to to be a friend of Job's? The text has told us in chapter 1, verse 3, Job is the greatest of all the people of the East. I mean, that's kind of hard to have a friend who's like the greatest of all the people of the East if you live in the East. You're thinking, I like the guy, but I don't need to hear that. You know, how's that supposed to make me feel, right? And it's our sense that maybe I'm not enough or maybe I'm not as much as Job that might make me feel better if I have a chance to give him some advice, meet him in his struggle with my wisdom. Must have felt great to go home that day as Job's counselors and say, honey, you know, I had a, gee, it was a real hard day. I had to come alongside Job, you know, the greatest man in the East and tell him how he could really be a little bit better. You know, I just shared some of what I've learned about life so that, you know, okay, what I'm trying to do is mitigate my own sense of shame uh, by helping somebody else with unsolicited advice. I don't, I don't know if you buy that, but more than anything, the book of Job tells us that there is something more fundamental going on here than meets the eye. As a matter of fact, it's our alienation from God that leaves us deeply vulnerable to accusation. This is the story that we get. Remember uh, the beginning of the Bible, if we just step back, this is the story of the whole Bible, that when the serpent in the Garden of Eden approaches the first, our first parents and says, you know, you're not really everything that you should be. I mean, God has withheld some good things from you. He appeals to their shame, even before their sin. Shame seems to be operating. And we see also here in this book, uh, in the first two chapters, you know, the, the real antagonist in the book of Job is, is, is not Job, it's not Job's companions. It's this character called Hasatan, which is Hebrew for the accuser. And there's this picture of some heavenly being in a heavenly courtroom who rises again and again to accuse God's people, to lay a claim against them. Whether he can prove that guilt or not, he seems to offer that. You're not good enough. You did this. You shouldn't have done that. You'll never be prepared to do this. The accuser is really the one who's operating here and whose influence is leveraging the 
unintended consequences of these counselors' words in Job's life. Ultimately, the one who has the power to accuse us most compellingly is ourselves. And so we ourselves have to know there is a solution in heaven for our own shame. And Job here somehow inexplicably seems to be able to lay hands on it. Look again at verse 25. He knows that there's another verdict over his life. That's why he wants to write something down indelibly. Because in heaven, there is one who has stood opposed to this general prosecutor. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side. Isn't that interesting? He says, I know someday. Someone else will rise to my defense, and I will see God on my side. Job claims an advocate. Now, who is this advocate? Scholars puzzle over that. Get a little bit of, a, of insight from Zechariah 3. Would you turn over to page 770 here? I just want to show you this. This is kind of cool. <clears throat> Zechariah is post-exilic prophet after Israel is come back from Babylon, where they were in exile, God gives Zechariah this vision, and it's of a heavenly courtroom. This is the only other place where we have Hasatan, the accuser, show up in the Old Testament. And it's this courtroom scene, and there's the Lord, and there are these two other figures. One is an angel or a messenger, and the other is uh, the accuser. And before them is standing Joshua, who stands, he's the high priest at the time, and he stands as a representative for Jerusalem or, or for Israel. And his clothes are filthy. Why? Because he hasn't been enough, actually. He hasn't done well. He's sinned. Israel has sinned. That's why they were off in exile. But, but now Joshua has come before this courtroom. And the reader's thinking, oh, this is going to be really ugly because the accuser is there. And what happens? The accuser doesn't even get a chance to speak. Immediately, the Lord speaks to the accuser. Verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't that interesting? Silences Satan. And then verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before Joshua, take off his filthy clothes. And to him he said, see, I have taken your guilt away from you. And I will clothe you with festal apparel. This is not a moment of condemnation. This is a moment of celebration. Because God has chosen you. And God has removed your guilt and your shame. And now he is clothing you. So this is another picture of this advocate, both Old Testament pictures. They point us forward, of course, to what we as followers of Jesus know is the cross. Ultimately, the accusation of Satan, the accusation of our own hearts, is rebuked and disarmed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus absorbs every accusation. Anything that every, anybody, including yourself, would accuse you of, Jesus draws it off. He's like a black hole pulling every accusation into himself and not releasing it. It's such a gravitational pull towards the cross. He's like a clown at a rodeo who jumps out into the ring to draw the bull away from the rider as soon as he falls in the dirt. He's like a manager who knows you didn't do it the, the best way, but who stands on your behalf in front of the board and said, this fault was really mine, and she takes the hit for you. So our Redeemer lives. 
There is right now, standing before the Father, an advocate in your name, the Son of God, speaking to the Father. Father, I have won heavenly garments. Now you have to dress them in my righteousness because I have been dressed in their shame. I hope you come to trust in this Redeemer. I hope you've come to faith in him or that you will today. And I hope that you come to trust this advocate, this Redeemer, in every painful situation that you face. Jesus offers us unsolicited grace. Unsolicited grace. as for you. And by the way, this grace doesn't just have implications for individuals. It has social implications. It has implications for your relationships. There's a new way of being a circle of friends. I mean, how would this conversation have been different if Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had come around Job and said, our Redeemer lives? What a very different story we'd be reading. Job knows there's something far greater than advice here. There's news here. There's good news here. Our Redeemer lives. Surely that should change the way we speak to one another. Our message to one another doesn't have to be try harder. It can be trust more. Trust him more with your need for control. Trust him more with your troubling sense of shame. This is a circle of friends gathered around the good news of Jesus. And if you wonder what in the world would that look like, the writer has already given us a picture. Let's just go back quickly and look at Job chapter 2, page 393. Look at this beautiful description. Here's what it should have looked like all the way through the book. Job's friends start really well. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had, st- that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home, three different countries, Eliphaz the, the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, they met together to go and console and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their ropes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And read this with me. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. That's what it should look like. They grieve with him. They go to be present with him. And there's not a word that's needed. There's not a word that could be helpful in this moment. Let me quickly give you two implications of this. First, we've got to get closer to people. And secondly, we've got to say less. There's a rabbi who claims to have discovered the meaning of friendship in a Polish tavern. Late one night, he overheard a conversation between two inebriated customers. One said, are you my friend? The other said, yes, of course. And he said, well, where does it hurt me? The other said, I do not know. And the first said, then you are not my friend. And the rabbi, overhearing this, concluded that to be a friend is to know where the other hurts. To know where the other hurts. If you want to be a friend, you have to get close enough to people to know what hurts them. That's what it means to be a helper. The second, we need to say less. Now, what I'm not saying by this is don't complain. Actually, complaints are very important in a relationship. This is not about some... Uh, suppressed, uh, um, passive-aggressive kind of a silence, where I just swallow things. No, Job for us is a model of complaints. 
He's complaining to God constantly through the book, right? He's saying, God, this relationship with you stinks. <laughs> this is what I need from this relationship. This is what I want from this relationship. And that's a good model for us, too. It's important for us to, to let people know what we need, what we want. But unsolicited advice is something that's very different. And that's not helpful. You say, oh, George, you don't know my child. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my mother-in-law. Well, and that's thankfully true, but I... I, I what I do know is this, is that if they don't want advice from you, they won't receive advice for you, from you, whether you, you share it or not. It does you no good to tell somebody else what their problem is. If you tell somebody else what their problem is, what's going to happen is it's going to destroy the relationship. On the other hand, if you're vulnerable about your problems, you can create a safe space in that relationship that's so life-giving that will allow people then to say, you know what, George, I think I trust you now enough to share with you, I have a problem, and this is my problem. And you know what that's called? It's called confession. And the Bible promises us where there's confession, there is healing. That's where the growth happens. The church ought to be a space like that. How many people think today that church is a place you go if you are willing to tolerate unsolicited advice? I mean, I think that's what the world thinks is going on right here, right? No, the church ought to be a community where people hurt, and it's okay to hurt. This is a church, a community of healers, where healing really happens. It's authentic. It's a place where people can bring more questions than they bring answers. A place where people are known as sinners, people who bring their shame and a place where we sit with our hurt and pain. I think our city so desperately needs this in a time when our civic conversation has degenerated from advice to accusations to storming out and even uh, violence. What kind of relationships would our city need to have experience from us in order when they face their racial tensions to say, I wonder what Jesus says about that. I'm going to go ask for advice from some of my friends at UPC. Or we had the Pride Fest yesterday. What kind of relationships we would, have to, would we have to have here in this city in order for people who are marching this weekend in Seattle to say, I wonder what Jesus has to say about sexuality. I'd like to ask for some advice from my friends at UPC. <laughs> Even as I say that, you, you all realize how very far we are away from that right now. We have some work to do to build these kinds of relationships so anyways, here's my advice. Let's say... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Let's say only what we need to say to convince one another that our Redeemer lives. That our Redeemer lives. You're never less alone than when you're with people who carry pain with Jesus. I'm going to close with the words of, from a poem that was written by Edward Shilito in the ashes of World War I. It's called Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray. Risen Jesus Christ, it's good news when we say that Jesus is Lord because the one who sits upon the throne is the Lamb who was slain. 
We pray that we would be a gracious people, quick to listen but slow to speak, and eager to open up a circle of fellowship in which the fellowship we experience is a fellowship of your suffering. And that in that circle, we might know that because you have suffered with us, we will rise with you to newness of life. You are our advocate, and truly our Redeemer lives. Thank you. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio Email audio at upc.org or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.